0: Hi, everybody, Liam here. Just a couple quick notes before we get to the show. This episode is part two of a mini series about Canyon. Canyon is a very unique little village tucked right behind Oakland in a valley on the other side of the East Bay Hills. And if you want to hear about its history from roughly the 1840s through the early 1960s, check out the first episode in this series. Also, Thank you so much to everyone who started supporting East Bay yesterday on Patreon lately. Wow, every donation makes a big difference because it means I can focus more on making this podcast and take on fewer side gigs. So yeah, thank you, thank you, thank you. Last thing, I've got a few events coming up that you can find out about on eastbayyesterday.com. For example, if you want to join me on a boat, for a waterfront history tour? That's coming up soon. I just did a test run the other day and I'm really excited about this route. We're gonna be cruising all over the East Bay and even out to Treasure Island. Another cool event coming up. This one is happening at uh, Wolfman Books in downtown Oakland. I'll be interviewing my friend Jenny O'Dell about her new book called How to Do Nothing. She was inspired to write this by living in Oakland and building a relationship with some local landmarks. So that's what we'll be chatting about. Come through. Okay, on to the show. You're listening to East Bay Yesterday. This show is about history, but it's not stuck in the past. Let's begin. Let's begin. George Menji was born in 1917 in Pinole, a little working class town about a half hour north of Oakland. He was only six years old when his mother committed suicide. After that, his dad sent him to live with his grandparents, but it didn't really work out, so he ended up bouncing around between a bunch of foster homes and orphanages. Sometimes he'd run away. He always got caught, sooner or later. Once George got older, he worked a bunch of odd jobs, but during the Great Depression, steady work was hard to find, so he eventually joined the army because it gave him a steady source of decent food. After World War II, he got a job in Alameda and moved in with his aunt. George Menji liked to hunt up in the East Bay Hills, so he got a dog, an Airedale Terrier, for a companionship. Unfortunately, George's aunt didn't really like his pet. She told him the dog had to go. But George, he loved the dog and decided to look for his own place instead.
1: I went down to the Alameda Times Star and put an ad in the paper. Veteran who wants home in Oakland Hills for himself and dog. The very next day, someone answered his ad. And I almost got out the door before the phone rang, and it was a guy by the name of Myers. He says, well, I have a cabin up in the Oakland Hills he said, it's in a place called Canyon. You know where that is? I said, no. He says, but I have a place. I'd like to meet you and we'll go take a look at it. I said, well, we'll try that. Anyway, he come and picked me up, and we, uh, we drove up there. And then there wasn't a driveway in there, but he stopped there, and we walked in. And over here under the poison oak was his cabin. Well, we had a pushed the Poison Oak aside. actually to get in there. We got in there and we looked at it. Inside, it didn't look bad at all, you know. It was all redwood, uh, board and bat construction. And uh, and I says, hey, this is fine.
0: George never moved again. In Canyon, he met the love of his life, Virginia.
1: I joined the volunteer fire department. And uh, we had a jeep here and uh, we were out on a fire run and... uh, on the way back, Virginia was in the front of the Jeep. She was standing up on the seat like a hood ornament, and I keep telling <laughs> her about that. Standing up there, the wind blowing and everything, I'd, wow, you know.
2: <laughs>
0: like, wow. I think anybody who's ever been in love can relate to a memory like that. Anyway, Virginia lived with her parents at the time. They'd moved up to Canyon in 1942, but pretty soon, she moved in with George, got married, and started a family of her own. They ended up having seven daughters. Donna,
1: Linda, Juanita, Ramona, uh, <laughs> Elena, Ginny, and Kendra.
0: During the 1950s, Canyon was just a rustic little village. Even though it was only a few miles from Oakland it felt like a million miles away. Your backyard was creeks and redwood trees. There weren't even any stoplights. But then, the 1960s happened. At the
1: time this all started, the hippie movement, they called it, I was uh, on the other side of the fence, I guess.
0: In case you didn't catch that, George was saying that when the hippie movement started, He was on the other side of the fence, so to speak.
1: But it didn't take long, and uh, I learned to like several of the people who were so-called hippies. And uh, Deva Rajan, him, and several of the other so-called hippies at that time, uh, became very close friends of mine.
0: Remember that name, Deva Rajan because we're gonna be hearing a lot more about him in this episode. Okay, back to George Menji. A lot of his more traditional neighbors really didn't like the hippies, but George had an open mind, so he started talking with some of them. And it didn't take long for those idealistic young dreamers to rub off on him. They
1: actually did a great thing for me. It changed my whole demeanor on, as far as life is concerned, I, uh, I became more tolerant and, uh, and learned to uh, kind of love everybody. That wasn't just a saying. I actually learned to love everybody, and it happens today.
3: Uh,
1: I can start to get angry with somebody. You have to look a little deeper sometimes. And you find there's more good there than bad. I'm sorry I'm such a weeper, but I am.
2: Well, I love that you are, and I do, and I can attest to your loving everybody, and I've certainly been the benefit of that in my own life.
0: That voice that came in at the end is Roberta Llewellyn. She recorded this interview about 20 years ago, back when she was living in Canyon. George Menji has passed away since then. George's story is interesting because, at first glance, you might not assume he'd be the type of guy to fall in love with a bunch of hippies. He worked out at the Alameda Naval Air Base as an investigator for the military. And remember, this was during the Vietnam era, so relationships between hippies and military detectives not usually known for being warm and cuddly. But there were some unique advantages to this friendship. Here's an example courtesy of former longtime Canyon resident Ed Johnson.
4: When Patty Hearst was kidnapped, the FBI was at his house 15 minutes after it happened because they know Canyon is a revolutionary hotbed. He says, okay, George, is she out here anywhere? He says no, not that he knew of. And, uh, and uh, she wasn't. But it's interesting that it had a kind of reputation like that.
0: George Menji wasn't a hippie. Although he did have something in common with his long-haired pot-smoking friends, they all loved Canyon. And Canyon might not have survived without this love because the town was almost destroyed, twice. The first threat was political. This news clip is from 1969. If the bureaucratic
1: squeeze has done anything, say the people who live in this beautiful canyon, it has united the community with the will to fight. They came here to escape the crunch of urban life and are determined to defend what they feel is a sanctuary against it becoming just another extension of suburbia. Ben Williams reporting for Eyewitness News from Canyon.
0: Here's longtime Canyon resident Esperanza Pratt Searles elaborating on that conflict.
5: There was pressure on the county to to shut canyon down before something, you know, awful happened like more hippies came. So uh, that was really going on. That fight was in full flower when we moved here and, and we loved it because as I said my parents were activists and we were hippies and so
0: we were like, yay. The other threat to canyon survival was even more terrifying than conservative bureaucrats. Here's Deva Rajan, the man who would grow to be best friends with George Menji, describing the aftermath of an explosion that almost wiped Canyon off the map.
3: So we came back home to find that the town had just gone up in smoke, and the roads were closed, there were fire engines all over the place, and they were toying out these police cars that had burned, and they wouldn't let us in.
0: Today's episode is about a community's fight for survival. We'll look at the battle to save Canyon and why it was worth saving. You're listening to East Bay Yesterday. I'm your host, Liam O'Donoghue. Stay tuned.
3: Hi, this is Deva Rajan. I live here in Canyon. I first moved here in 1960
0: and built uh, our own home in starting in 63. Around the time that Deva Rajan moved, moved to Canyon, a lot of young people were really hopeful about the future. The early years of the hippie movement were incredibly idealistic. I asked him if the people who came out here were trying to build a little utopia.
3: Yes, I think uh, there was definitely that interest of a better utopian life, but uh, in many cases it was people that were running away from something, running away perhaps from a religious background somewhere, a family that was insisting on certain things, certain colleges, certain lifestyle professions that they should go into, and there were people running away from that, and seeing the corporate lifestyle of the 50s and 60s not being so good after all. During that time, there was uh, interest in finding a whole nother way. And there was a lot of experimentation, sexual freedoms, living in the forest in a tent, <laughs> building a tree house in a redwood. So there are all kinds of experiments going on, all the uh, hallucinatory drugs and stuff.
0: Deva was part of the first wave of countercultural people that moved out to Canyon in the early 60s. They weren't even called hippies yet. I'm not positive, but I think the person who started this migration was a guy named Bruce Bailey. Bruce was an avant-garde filmmaker who moved here from Berkeley to start something called Canyon Cinema in his backyard.
3: And he was putting on films out here. He would get a, a space somewhere, Put up a white sheet and show films. And uh, there were things called happenings where, you know, musicians and musical groups were invited to come and perform. And so that brought a lot of people here.
0: Bruce also filmed experimental movies in Canyon. So <laughs> picture all these freaky artists suddenly running around in this quaint little village full of middle class families. These newcomers they didn't exactly try to fit in. Imagine one of the normals looking out their window and seeing this.
4: Barry would wear a loincloth in the middle of winter, barefoot and a loincloth and long hair. That was,
0: you could find him dressed in a rainstorm, walking around outside in the mud. It wasn't just the hippies clothes or lack thereof that bothered the old timers. During the 1960s, Canyon might have ingested more LSD per capita than any other town in America. The New Kids turned this quaint enclave into a party town. Here's Ed Johnson recalling some of the typical hijinks.
4: We are a bunch of hippies on acid. We were stealing loquats in front of this One house has a little picket fence in front of it. It was Shally's house at the time. Conservatives, they didn't like the hippies at all, especially anti-war hippies. So we we're all high and we we're all quietly picking loquats. And this one guy, Bruce, he takes a stick and he goes, burr, 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 on this picket fence. The porch lights come on. See, all of us stealing their loquats. He runs down this, the hill going, ah, 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 like people are trying to murder him. We're running to get away from the lights. Ah, the lights are coming. We're running through the lights, chasing his <laughs> laughing. So go figure
0: it out. Karen Pickett has lived in Canyon for almost 50 years. Here's her take on this culture clash.
6: The old families who were here, you know, it's easy to see why they would resist the new people coming in because it did, I'm sure that it felt like an invasion. The people coming in were were excited and maybe aggressive about their lifestyle.
0: Again, Deva Rajan.
3: Well, one of the ways it worked out is that uh, a lot of the people that were uncomfortable with this change, they just left. They just sold their houses and left. And uh, some of the older uh, members who were, you might say, part of that original older group, they stayed. They uh, actually fell in love with what we were doing and became a part of it. George Bench and I became best friends. Uh, we, we worked at the school, volunteer work for years and years and years together.
0: The Canyon School is the heart of the town. It's one of the only non-residential buildings in Canyon. So it's like a town hall too. It's where people come together.
3: We used to have all these work parties and everybody would show up on Saturday and work in the school, fix, fix things up or build a deck or something. And after the months go by, uh, most people fell away and it was just George and me. It was, it was so damn much good fun. <laughs> really loved it.
0: Before we get to the battle to save Canyon, I want to explore why Canyon was worth saving. Obviously, the term hippie is a broad generalization, you know, there's the whole sex, drugs, and rock and roll, flower power cliche. But Canyon didn't just turn into some non-stop stoner orgy during the 60s. A big part of the lifestyle out here was about rejecting the disposability of consumer culture and trying to be more self-reliant, less wasteful. In some ways, hippie values weren't that different from the traditional values that Devarajan was raised with in Southern California.
3: So we lived on this little farm and raised, you know, livestock and chickens and ducks and all that kind of stuff, and had a huge uh, garden. So that was a big part of my upbringing. It was also the rule of the household, so to speak, was that money was very important. It was special. You only used money to buy things that you couldn't make or you couldn't grow. So I would save up all my nickels and dimes from mowing lawns and stuff to buy like a tire or an inner tube for my bicycle.
0: In his early 20s, Deva came up to Berkeley to study sculpture and art history. He heard about Canyon from one of his professors and found a place here for $50 a month. While he was going to grad school he was working construction jobs on the side after he graduated deva started teaching at cal but he decided that he liked construction better than academia so he decided to leave the university and start his own business however he didn't abandon his education he merged his artistic appreciation and knowledge of masonry and metal forging and woodwork into his new company He called the firm Canyon Construction.
3: When I got licensed, that was my goal, was to bring that kind of passion for the arts into construction. That's how this house that we're sitting in right now was uh, created, with artists. We built several houses like this using found building materials.
0: One example, Deva's living room has one of the biggest and most gorgeous wood-burning stoves I've ever seen. It looks like a huge kettlebell that could swallow tree trunks whole. Here's how we got it.
3: That stove came out of the ocean. That's an ocean buoy. George Manji called me and he said, hey, they've got a whole yard full of these ocean buoys. And uh, the Navy's selling them for five bucks a piece.
0: In the early years of canyon construction, Deva never had any trouble finding high quality, low cost materials.
3: Around 65, there was an abundance of used timber and lumber that was glutting the Bay Area. There was so much of it because a lot of old buildings were being replaced with steel and concrete. For example, the old uh, Hall of Justice it was in uh, San Francisco. They tore it all down, and the demo contractor hauled it all out to Hunter's Point. And there was a kind of an open yard there where you could just dump trash. So a lot of gorgeous materials were just being pushed into bay. We talked to the dozer operator that was doing that and found out which beverage was his favorite. Was it whiskey or was it beer? <laughs> and we'd leave him a, a case of beer or you know a bunch of whiskey at the gate, and he'd leave the lock open. <laughs> so when he left at 4.30, we would be there with our trucks, and we'd go in and we'd load up all the timber we could get.
0: The phrase building community gets thrown around a lot these days. In Canyon, building community isn't just an expression. People flocked here from all over the country and literally building the community from the ground up was how they got to know each other. They were trying to create a radically new kind of society and they were doing it with all the cast offs that the old system was leaving in its wake. One time, a lumberyard in Oakland couldn't sell a massive stockpile of used wood, so they told Deva he could have it for free, if he would haul out the whole lot. Fortunately, a lot of people in Canyon had trucks.
3: So we hauled timber and hauled timber and hauled timber. And out of that, I believe we built 11 homes here in Canyon.
0: With free materials. With
3: free materials, and we just shared it all. We didn't, like, charge anybody anything, just... If you helped haul it, then you could have it. (laughs) And then we would go and help each other build it.
0: Other contractors had looked at this wood and seen garbage. People in Canyon took it and built homes so gorgeous that some of them have been featured in architectural books and magazines. But not everybody was on board with this ethos of salvaging wasted materials and giving them new life like a marble and granite company that found out that Deva was retrieving their leftover slabs after they tossed them out at a local dump.
3: They later found out we were doing that, so they made their driver of this uh, dozer, run over all the granite and marble and break it all up.
0: Karen Pickett is one of the many Canyon residents whose house is constructed from salvage materials. When I was interviewing her about all the time and energy that canyon people have put into helping each other build their homes i told her that it all sounded like a lot of work she didn't even have to pause before responding
6: so is going to a job in the financial district and bringing home enough money to to pay all these other people to do it for you
0: Deva Rajan's tall wooden house blends in perfectly with the surrounding forest of moss covered oaks. Looking out from his living room, which is on the third story, it almost feels like being in a really elegant tree house. Back when he first built it, this connection with nature was even more visceral. For several years,
3: there were no windows. This was all open and this was just a This railing, which is about four feet, was all there was. And uh, Barry Smith talked me into this idea. (laughs) He says, just leave it open and then you have a a fire pit in the middle of your room and a roof keeps the rain off, but that way you can be sort of outdoors all the time. I tried that (laughs) for years and all I got was a bunch of leaves blown in and (laughs) cats and (laughs) raccoons.
0: I know not putting windows in your living room sounds kind of ridiculous, but the 60s were all about trial and error. Sure, there were plenty of mistakes, but there was a lot of growth, too. A lot of people who came here because they were running away from something found what they were looking for. And it wasn't utopia. It was something real. In a book of recollections about living in Canyon during this era, a woman named Annie wrote, It's okay to be a beginner. No one's judging me, and there's so much to learn. Growing vegetables, chopping firewood, singing, meditating, making jelly from wild fruit, milking goats, weaving, embroidering. None of this did I learn or want to learn growing up in Los Angeles end quote. People also learned to make pottery, blow glass, bake bread, deliver babies, and much more. They learned how to live. At the same time that the hippies were building up Canyon, the water company, East Bay Municipal Utility District, was trying to wipe it off the map
5: because they had formed the upper San Leandro reservoir East Bay Muds plan was to gradually buy up and destroy the homes in Canyon and not have there be a community up here anymore
6: everywhere all around Canyon was was growing the bay area in general was growing that's what put East Bay Muds policy into place because they were the supplier of water and their service area was expanding so in order to provide for that service area, they needed more reservoirs, they needed more watershed feeding the creeks into the reservoirs. So this was just one place where that was happening.
3: Well, there was a, an interesting moment in 1960 when I moved here, when uh, East Bay Mud had been buying homes in Canyon and burning them. So they had bought 60 Houses in Canyon and burned them. And at first, they had
1: a lot of success because people wanted cash money, and uh, only people that could pay it was a water company. And so they bought a lot of places until a lot of people, thank goodness even myself, decided to uh, do some talking on the other side and convince people that, hey, you know, the place is still going to be of value tomorrow. You don't have to sell it today, things like that. So we stopped
3: some people Mm -hmm. from selling their places. And about that time, a pretty large group of residents started to dig their heels in and said, hey, no more of this.
0: The campaign to stop East Bay Mud from taking over Canyon and getting rid of all the people was pretty straightforward. If property owners in Canyon were thinking about selling to the water company... The strategy was to find other buyers to outbid the water company and move into those houses. In order to survive, Canyon needed new residents. East Bay Mud wasn't happy about this.
3: So we fought them, and uh, I know when uh, we uh, had a bulldozer cut a road into the road that you drove up today, comes up to our driveway, and we cut that in across East Bay Mud land. And so these three guys came out in their black suits and they said, you can't do that. We're going to send a dozer out here to take that road out. So we're giving you 30 days notice to move out because we're going to remove your access road. I'm holding my firstborn Abe in my arms. He about 10 inches long, <laughs> a little teeny baby. And I'm telling him, you know, uh, did you ever have a vision in your life when you were my age? Did you ever have a dream? I have a huge dream right now, and I'm not going to let go of it. I can see you guys have all let go of your dreams, but I'm not letting go of mine. So then I called some TV companies, and I said, uh, you know, they're going to take out a, our only Access and leave us stranded here. And they said, we'll be out. So I called East Bay Mud back up, and I said, are you still coming? And you know, you said, 30 days, you're going to come out. He says, yeah, we're going to be there. And I said, well, good. Make sure you send a representative because you're all gonna be on film with these three TV companies, and they need a statement from you.
0: (laughs) Well, you know what happened. They never showed, so. (laughs) E.B. Mudd backed down from that dispute, but the fight was far from over. The conflict would end up dragging on for years. In the meantime, another threat almost destroyed Canyon in the blink of an eye.
2: Well, Shell Oil was having a um, strike, and there was a pipe further down the the road going d- towards Oakland, down Pinehurst, and there was a place where the pipe crossed the creek, and I guess somebody bombed that, sabotaged it.
0: That's Christina Bernard, who's lived in Canyon since the early '60s. She was less than a mile away when somebody bombed a fuel pipeline that connected the Shell plant in Martinez with storage tanks in Oakland and San Jose. The most widespread theory is that it was connected to a labor dispute between Shell and its workers. The explosion happened the same night that workers were returning to their jobs without contracts after a 10 week strike. Nobody has ever been charged or convicted for the attack, but whoever did it knew the infrastructure well. The place where the pipeline crossed the creek upstream from Canyon is the only section where it wasn't buried underground. The
2: gas moved down the creek, I guess the water carried it, and it it accumulated down at the bridge by the post office. I believe a spark from a car set it off. I was in bed, it was this huge explosion, and I thought it was an atomic bomb. I really did, and I had my two little kids with me, and, and I, the first thing that popped into my head was coats and shoes. Find their coats and shoes and get out. And I, I you know, went out, and everything was lit up.
0: What you're about to hear is TV news coverage of the explosion. The man being interviewed has long hair and a shaggy beard. He's wearing a Black Panther's pin. He looks shell-shocked. The twisted metal and blackened trees behind him are still smoking. It looks like Canyon got hit by an air raid.
7: Everybody was running around pushing one another and carrying one another and I started coming up the road and everybody was running, run, run, get away. And the people in the car started piling in i ran up to the top of the hill and when i was up there there was another explosion this maybe like half hour or 45 minutes after the first one and all that gasoline all that time had been pouring into the creek and following the creek all the way down and all the fumes had been coming up and going on the banks of the creek and when a second explosion went off all the fumes from wherever it is a mile up the road all the fumes that were on the side of the creek ignited like an explosion and it exploded from half a mile up the road to a half a mile down the road, just a big boom. And after the boom was over, all the liquid was on fire and it caught everything, all the trees in the creek and the shed and the cars in the house. What was the
8: condition of the man in the phone booth?
7: Um, I don't know, he was all burned. He
0: just didn't have any clothes on. I burned all his clothes off. The man in the phone booth was Earl Davis. He worked for Shell as a pipeline superintendent, and he'd come out here to survey the damage. He was just smoldering with smoke coming off his skin, and he
7: couldn't see, and he was staggering around down here with everything burning and all the smoke. And we saw him from up on top of the hill and came down and helped him up, and um, he was just all burned everywhere.
0: Earl Davis died in a hospital four days later. Again, Christina Bernard.
2: Well, it was very shocking. And very sad because someone had been killed. And he was trying to, I I guess he was trying to call the fire department. I can't remember why he was there. But he was being brave, you know, and and he lost his life.
0: Vicki Saputo's family has been in Canyon since the 1860s. She was putting her baby to sleep when the explosion hit.
9: I was in the bathroom brushing my teeth and I heard this... So, I thought it was a sonic boom. And my husband was outside doing something in the car and he saw a big flash in the sky. Well, we had a phone tree in those days. So somebody called me and said, you have to evacuate. And so then I had to call the next person to tell them to evacuate. During the
0: chaos, Vicki heard gunshots. She had no idea what was happening.
9: There were some police cars that were there that all their ammunition went off, so it sounded
0: like a shootout or something. The police cars had been engulfed by the fireball. When they melted, the bullets inside exploded. So I just
9: remember running out the door and grabbing three pictures of my baby that were on top of the piano, and I thought, at
0: least I'll have that, and we left. I didn't have diapers, I had nothing, we just left. The explosion happened in March of 1969, and the fact that it had rained a few days earlier is probably the only reason why more people weren't killed. Earl Davis was the lone fatality, and less than 10 people in Canyon were seriously injured. So it was tragic, but it could have been much worse. After dropping her son off at her parents' place, Vicki wanted to go back to her house and get some diapers and other essentials.
9: It was really stupid, but we did. We went back, and we I don't remember where we parked the car, but it was before the school somewhere, and we walked down Pinehurst toward the hairpin turn that would go up to Skyline, so we were going that direction, so from Moraga to Canyon. So we're walking that whole length, and the flames were like 500 feet in the air on either side of us, and we're walking in the middle of it. You know, it must have been adrenaline or something that was... That We did this. And then we didn't have that store or the inn anymore. We didn't have the post office. They put a trailer in there. There used to be a dance hall in the back, and that was gone. And it was,
0: it was really sad. People didn't know if Canyon would ever recover. The psychological and physical devastation was traumatizing. And the water company still wanted them gone. But life in Canyon was resilient.
2: That big redwood that's right there in front of the post office, that was completely burnt. And we thought for sure it'd die, but it came back. Which is kind of amazing, yeah.
8: Canyon is a modern anachronism. Just 10 minutes from the housing developments in Moraga, the people here live sandwiched between redwoods and waterfalls. Five minutes away, people in Moraga also live sandwiched, but between telephone poles and lamp posts. And that, say the people who live here, is precisely why they intend on staying.
3: So as we started to rebuild for the post office, E.B. Mud was all over us because they didn't want that growth to come back. So they partnered up with the, the uh, public works department, and, or the health department, excuse me. And uh, they wrote ordinances. For example, the, the most damaging one was the ordinance that you couldn't get a septic temperament for a property that was within 1,000 feet of a creek. We've got creeks all over the place. There's a creek right next to our driveway. There's a big creek down below. So it basically meant you couldn't get a new septic tank permit in Canyon. That means you couldn't get a new construction.
0: E.B. Mudd's argument was that septic tanks could leak and contaminate the creek feeding into the reservoir. No test has ever revealed this kind of pollution, but either way, Canyon folks felt like this was a flimsy excuse, since the water company never had a problem with, say, cows grazing in this watershed. They felt that efforts to evict them stemmed from a different kind of concern. This story from Esperanza is what I'm talking about.
5: Once my mother went, she got a job teaching in San Leandro and she shared the commute with a teacher from Moraga. And the teacher said to my mother as they were driving to work, I believe I saw one of your fellow community members in the Safeway the other day. He was bearded and his beard was filthy. He had long, matted hair. His T-shirt looked like he had slept in it for weeks. He was barefooted and his feet were black. Do you know this man? And Mom said, you'll have to be a lot more specific. That sounds like a lot of my neighbors.
0: (laughs) Oh, damn.
5: The development of Moraga was... um, They were shooting toward a high-end white flight thing and having a bunch of scroungy hippies wasn't really helpful.
3: And so Spring finds Canyon with many of the same problems that bother the rest of us. The sound of jet airliners overhead, smog, and most of all, the relentless pressures of civilization pushing in from all sides. And if those pressures succeed in driving out Barry Smith and some of the other non-conformists, they will have succeeded in making of Canyon what the establishment could not, a community of conformists. Bill Hillman, Eyewitness News in Canyon.
8: Well, this tower was uh, built without a permit, largely because the uh, permit wasn't issued for the building. Permits have been consistently refused the uh, Canyon homeowners and residents for any kind of structure. John Adams, who built this uh, tower, applied for a permit, and uh, the permit was denied. And he wasn't a man who likes to spend his time in court. He's mm-hmm. a carpenter, and he likes to build. So he built without a permit. Mm-hmm. And uh, there's a possibility this house may uh, be condemned because mm-hmm. of that. Well, now, how are you going to answer that possibility? Well, I, uh, I expect to uh, spend the rest of my life in this house. I've uh, done all the traveling I plan to do. And uh, the only way they're getting me out of this house is feet first.
6: The county red-tagged a lot of places. And, you know, they also picked up unlicensed dogs and all kinds of things like that. They, they just really harassed people. And it was a, a difficult time because once a building is red-tagged, you know, you're not supposed to be there. You're not supposed to go inside again. And this is where people were living. And when those kinds of threats loom, then Canyon can be very rebellious. But, you know, it's rebellious in in the kind of way that it's hanging on to what's valuable here and and what is good about keeping it as its own community.
5: Canyon was really well organized against any kind of enforcement agency. Some of the guys who were more uh, militant had these bins with metal staples in them that were in little bundles of 10, and if you saw a police car coming, you were supposed to, you know how the road kind of zigzags, so you could cut up trails and get up a little faster than a car, and you were supposed to go grab one of these bundles of staples and sprinkle them out in the road so they would get flat tires.
3: They sent out these uh, sheriff cars, and in the sheriff cars were uh, also some narcotics experts, and building officials and they were going house to house inspecting and red tagging. So they're all going up this road up toward Barry's place and uh, they get to the top of the road, this narrow little teeny road. Barry had built a barricade across the road. Logs and skulls and you know various signs. And, and so this whole...
0: Not human skulls I'm guessing. <laughs> no, no.
3: <laughs> Some kind of you know animal skull. Anyway so this caravan of police cars, sheriff's cars and Billion Spectra cars, this whole caravan stops at this roadblock. Then uh, the last car in the caravan starts to back down the road so they could all maybe get out, and he drives off the road. So that car is stuck off the road, blocking everybody in their cars up to the roadblock. Meanwhile, uh, Barry lets off with a 30-30. It gives a few blasts in the air, just... Let's off a couple rounds (laughs) and that keeps everybody in their cars (laughs) nobody's getting out of their cars and they're calling for a tow truck and a few hours later they finally uh go home
0: (laughs) barry barry stopped them in their tracks huh
3: yeah yeah it was pretty it was pretty cool
0: (laughs) i love this story because it just feels like so improbable like you could never get away with doing that today (laughs)
3: Right, but uh, you know what? We were told by certain uh, sheriff's officers, nobody in the sheriff's department wanted to come to Canyon after that. So it had a long-term effect.
6: People from other places, in particular Berkeley, you know, were very supportive. I mean, Country Joe and the Fish did a, a big benefit out here to raise money for the litigants. and. I think that that was also something that the county did not count on was outside
0: support. When the main confrontation moved from the barricades to the courtroom, the media was there. And somewhat surprisingly, they gave Canyon pretty fair coverage
8: I have a daughter, a 10-year-old daughter, who uh, right now is very frightened every time she sees a policeman. She's seen policemen condemn houses. Uh, they've condemned her tree house because it doesn't have plumbing. This is a seven by seven structure in a tree. Uh, in fact, they threatened to send her to juvenile shelter if she entered her own treehouse. house. Uh, they have dog catchers in Canyon. The dog catchers probably out there today rounding up dogs in violation of the leash law that they have for this county, which is a law passed for places like this, not for a wooded area. My friend Tim Biggins had his house condemned because his plans were not approved because he didn't have room for two-car parking. And that's in the middle of a Madrone Forest up an incline that a mule can't get up. Uh, This is the kind of harassment we've had from the county.
2: In the end analysis, the decision made by the Board of Supervisors over this sanitation issue will really determine whether the small town of Canyon will continue to exist. Belva Davis for Eyewitness News in Martinez.
6: It was challenged in court, and the court battle lasted some time, and and so there was kind of a just like a peddling in place while it was in court because they didn't have the full enforcement power to come out and carry out all their directives. But the county ended up winning in court. But it had it had been such a long, hard-fought battle, much more than the county thought it was biting off, that they didn't want to fight that battle anymore. So there were some agreements that, you know, this house and this house and this house would come down, and some houses were brought up to code, if they could be, and then other areas were, were left alone, but they didn't come back out.
5: And essentially the county developed the informal attitude of if you leave us alone, we'll leave you alone. Well, the fallout
6: has has actually lasted a long time, but it did end in in in, in something of an
0: uncomfortable truce. So even though the county won the legal battle, it was such a hassle and a PR nightmare that they basically decided to just ignore Canyon, more or less. And after about two decades of buying up Canyon homes and destroying them, East Bay Mud finally gave up, too.
3: I think a lot of the old guard at East Bay Mud retired. So new people came in, and they down-dressed. They didn't come out in black suits anymore. They'd come out in Levi's and plaid shirts and meet with us at the school, and some growth occurred and some change of their policies. So they were definitely uh, supporting everything at the school. They allowed the school to use that whole, uh, what we call the grove, That's East Bay Mudland. They tore down a lot of their fences. So it's been beautiful.
0: (laughs) 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 While I was working on this story, I visited the Canyon School. The Grove where the kids play between classes is recess heaven. Having gone to a school where Our recess area was literally just a parking lot. I actually got a little jealous seeing these kids building really cool tree forts and scampering around on the banks of a pristine brook. It's really special. And the school itself is so renowned that even parents from Moraga and Arinda put their kids on wait lists to get one of the limited slots for out-of-district students. That's right. Times have really changed since the era when residents from the nearby upscale suburbs simply looked down on canyon folks as dirty hippies, polluting the Safeway with their scruffy beards and dirty t-shirts. Oh, and their filthy feet. Can't forget that part.
5: He was barefooted and his feet were black.
0: So what changed over the past few decades? Well, in the next episode, I'm gonna explore Canyon in the 1970s and beyond to see what happened here after the town won its fight for survival. But for now, I'll just leave the last word to Dave Rajan, who truly knows how to bask in the glory of a moment.
3: I remember every morning waking up to the sound of Marjorie. Playing her bamboo flute, and this bamboo Indian flute music coming down on the soft air of the morning where there's no wind and no movement, just this flute playing. <sighs> what a way to wake up, huh? <laughs>
0: Thank you so much for listening to this episode of East Bay Yesterday. I've been your host, Liam O'Donohue. If you want to see photos of Canyon and also get details on that waterfront history boat tour I'm doing, check out eastbayyesterday.com. And to all the people who are supporting East Bay Yesterday through Patreon, you are keeping the show alive. I've got more than 50 patrons now, and I'm really grateful to each and every one of you. Besides all the people who talked to me for this episode, I want to thank Jared Childress, Amelia Sue Marshall, John Vanderzee, Roberta Llewellyn, and the Bay Area Television Archive at San Francisco State University. Also, big thanks to Sean and Andrea from Digital Roots Studio. The interview with George Menji at the beginning of this episode was originally on an old cassette tape, and they were kind enough to digitize it for me so I could use the audio. If you need anything digitized, check them out. They're over on Piedmont Avenue. One more shout out. Thank you to my lovely wife, Elizabeth C. She took some of the photos of Canyon that I've got posted on my website right now. Thank you, baby. You're the best. Mwah. Also, don't forget to follow East Bay Yesterday on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. And hey, do me a favor. If you like this episode, spread the word about it. And tag me if you do. Okay. You can subscribe to East Bay Yesterday on pretty much all the major podcast apps. Music for this episode came from Lobo Loco, Noi, Jazar, Appetite, Chris Sabrisky, and Apache Dropout. The theme song music came from Anatech. Thanks again for listening. I'll be back very soon with more episodes of East Bay Yesterday.